Hello everyone, and welcome to Downsizing, the podcast where we try and figure out when the office actually ended, because everyone would have been fired. My name is Curtis, and I'll be your host, and with me is my co-host and residence office expert, Antoinette. Hey everyone. Today we will be discussing Season 3, Episode 23, the Season 3 finale, The Job. And in this episode, we see shifts in power, relationship changes, and promotions. We kick this episode off with a cold open, and we see Michael in corporate headquarters ready for his interview for the job at corporate. And David Wallace comes in, and Michael gets up, says, hey, ready to go, are you? And David points out that Michael's interview is tomorrow. Which I'm going to guess that the receptionist at corporate, Grace, probably let Michael know that when he came there and said why he was there. Or, here's another theory, she knows a lot about Michael, that he's sort of the joke, and just let it happen so David could see, hey, this guy can't even keep track of his own schedule. That's a good call. But to his credit, Michael does kind of make the most of this opportunity. Agree. He just kind of starts fishing for information and asks David, hey, how many people are you interviewing for this position? And then he just kind of goes, have any of them been here as long as I have? And he also brings up the fact that after the merger of all the branches, he asks David, Hey, who was the manager that you put in charge of those branches? And David is just kind of acknowledging (laughs) what Michael is doing here and is just kind of nodding an aug and smiling and is like, yep, that was you that we did that with. Yeah, he's sort of, he's not purposefully patronizing Michael. He's just doing the thing or you just smile and nod when you encounter a quote unquote crazy person. And I mean that in the sense of like a low level can't read the room, not very socially gracious type of person. And it's probably another instance of, like you said earlier, David knowing who Michael is and is just like, all right, just going to play along until, you know, he makes all his points and and gets out of here. We do get a tidbit of information that they are interviewing all the branch managers and a couple of lower level employees. And it's funny because Michael tries to play it off smooth that, oh, he just happened to be in the neighborhood. And David points out, oh, he just happened to be in lower midtown Manhattan at in the middle of a work day. So Michael is then forced to call Pam after telling the camera that all the other branch managers are just morons and he's definitely got this in the bag, that he accidentally drove to New York on the wrong day. He's going to be like three hours late. No biggie. So we open the episode kind of dealing with some of the fallout of beach games. And this mostly centers around Pam, especially because, as we talked about in last episode, there wasn't really any resolution in what the point of the beach games were. Right. In in all respects, that storyline really hung out there as the penultimate episode of this season. And people are kind of just giving Pam some some light ribbing. Oscar does so in the 
break room and people are just kind of pointing out that they had never really heard Pam talk like that or act like that. But where we really see a fallout is in the love triangle that we haven't really seen a whole lot of movement in mm-hmm. in the last couple weeks. Yeah, things have been a bit stagnant um, with the Jim, Pam, Karen saga. Yeah, for the past couple episodes, Pam's speech is really going to be the catalyst towards moving characters to a resolution here. Pam kind of takes the first step and goes to Karen and says, hey, I just want to talk to you about what happened on the beach. And Karen kind of jumps in ahead of her and says, you know what? We all say things that we don't mean. It happens. No big deal. Yeah, Karen's kind of trying to be the bigger person here a little bit and give her an easy out. And Pam kind of corrects Karen and says, no, I meant every word I said of it. It was more, maybe that wasn't the best way to do it. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about any kind of tension this might have caused between us. And you do make a good point here because this is Pam apologizing, but she's not apologizing at all. Here. She just says, sorry if it made you uncomfortable, which is, as we have seen, you know, on the internet is the most non-apology apology ever. Sorry for how you feel about <laughs> what I did, not for what I did. And there, like Pam, you can tell means everything that she said and probably has some motive in both that and this because she doesn't say anything about, hey, I'm not trying to threaten you and Jim's relationship. I just want to be friends with Jim. I hope that you and I can be friends and let's kind of move past this. She doesn't say any of that. She basically, like you said, she just says, sorry about how you feel about this. Karen is just taken aback by this whole thing. As Pam told the camera in a one-on-one, we get a lot of Pam one-on-ones in this episode, by the way. It took her three years to summon the courage to say this to really tell Jim how she feels this was her casino night moment it just happened to take place in front of the entire office including Jim's not new girlfriend they've been together for at least six maybe going on seven months here at this point Karen tells the camera you know Pam's kind of a bitch and Karen has every right to feel this way here and I'd like to tell a little anecdote Uh, myself about maybe what Karen was really feeling. She, and we've said this ad nauseum on this podcast, has done nothing wrong. Jim made the misstep from the start by not giving Karen a woman who was moving to Scranton, moving to work in the branch with Jim and Pam, more of a backstory. He made a major misstep when apparently they started dating before they left Stanford. They both were going to move to Scranton. Jim had a history there. Even though it was a new relationship, he should have been giving Karen more information from the start. And now she's in this position of having to tell someone pretty much to step off 
her relationship, of which she is completely justified in doing so. It's her relationship. So the story I'd like to tell involves my co-host here. And we were at a bar one night, and Curtis had a flirtatious relationship, let's say, with this other woman predating any point in which he and I were together. So we were at a bar for a going away party for, you know, a third person here. And this woman was engaged and I believe married at this point um, to a person that's obviously not Curtis. Some individual wasn't even really hitting on her that hard, but just asked if she wanted a drink. And she took that moment to slide over and say, and hook her arm in Curtis's and say, oh, sorry, I'm here with my fiance right in front of me. Now, I wish I had had the nerve then. I definitely didn't, but I would now to be like, uh, no, 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 no. Not in front of me and not with my, as we called each other then, committed life partner sort of thing. Like we had been together at least a year at this point. Curtis and I both knew that this was a serious and long-term relationship heading into marriage. And this bee comes in and acts like she can do whatever she wants because Curtis and her had some sort of previous flirtatious type of relationship. We did not hang out with her much after this point for a multitude of reasons. One, just that sort of fizzled out. But two... I did know, and there were hints of that early in my relationship with Curtis. Like, he didn't know much about me and where it was headed in the early days, but he had had this thing with her. And so she was still carrying that on, like, oh, yeah, no big deal. We have this history not being at all respectful of the fact that I was standing literally on the other side of Curtis. Uh, sort of thing. So again, I wish I'd had uh, the nerve to say all the things that I thought in my head uh, after the fact. And I wouldn't have made a big thing of it, but just been like, hey, you know what's wildly inappropriate? Everything that you just did. Do you have anything to add to that? No, not really. And so this kind of feels like a point of no return in the love triangle. Yeah, because Karen's digging in here as well. Because immediately she goes to Jim and says, hey, let's leave early. Let's have a night in the city. She doesn't want any more time to be around Pam. Right. So at this point, there's no way that there can be any kind of friendship between Jim and Pam or Pam and Karen, anything like that. Like this is done. This is the line in the sand. And so this is definitely a big turning point in Jim and Karen's relationship. It is at about this time that we see a special visitor show up at the office. And it's Jan. Now, if you remember, the last time that we saw Jan, she was being dumped by Michael (laughs) in that very office. Via voicemail. Right. And... Jan comes and wants to talk to Michael in private and just is kind of laying it out there that she's done some thinking in the last two weeks. She's done some self-reflection. She's made a lot of changes and that she would really like to try and 
get back together with Michael. Now, before Michael heads into his office to have this discussion with Jan, he has Pam round up his his trusted ladies <laughs> to meet in the conference room for a DEFCON 10 meeting. Yes, everyone... So Kelly never gets mentioned as a possibility. And then Michael lists off everyone else except Meredith. Pam points out, what about Meredith? Michael immediately says, no, she can just be an alternate. When Jan kind of spills her guts out to Michael, he very abruptly says... I'll be right back, leaves and turns and goes directly into the conference room and relays everything that Jan had just said to his ladies to try and get some advice from them. And the advice is pretty unanimous. Nothing really has changed from two weeks ago from Michael's point of view. People point out that he is very happy right now and that he is in a good place. There's no reason to bring Jan back into this. They tell him to be strong, and then he heads back in. Unfortunately, Jan has removed the denim jacket that she was previously wearing, and Michael is greeted by her new breast. She has had a breast augmentation done on her vacation, and that's all he can focus on. It's like a cat and a laser pointer where he just keeps staring straight at them. Jan knows what she's doing here. She came in with the jacket all the way buttoned up. She knew that he was probably going to get some advice to get people to tell him to be strong, to sort of refresh that he wasn't, you know, seduced by her. So she removed the jacket and she's wearing a very low-cut v-neck sweater. Jan starts out by saying, okay, you know, I want to change my approach to this relationship. And then we can sort of talk about the path to reconciliation. And Michael just blurts out, let's just get back together. Which is exactly what Jan wanted, had planned for. She knows that he's kind of a boob guy. And one of the things he kept listing off at the mall, if you'll recall is that Jan was pretty flat-chested. That was nothing that he was excited by. So this is enough for Michael to just overcome everything that was wrong with their relationship. The fact that he was wildly unhappy, that she ignored what he wanted and steamrolled him just for, just to touch some, uh, you know, some saline boobs. That is not a judgmental statement on anyone with a breast augmentation. You need to do what is right for you and your body. No judgment. Michael is also doing some kind of house cleaning things before he takes off to New York for his job interview, which he is looking at as a coronation. Like we have said before, he thinks he already has this job in the bag and he is acting in accordance with this mindset. He is doing a lot of putting the cart before the horse. So much. He talks to the accounting department just as kind of like a whimsical, it's nice working with you all, goodbye. And he mentions that he sold his condo. I also love that throughout this entire episode, Everyone involved, those who are doing the interviews and those that are still left in Scranton, have this assumption that 
the person that gets the job is literally never coming back. Never coming back to see them. That is the end. They will forever stay in New York. They won't need to get come for their stuff. They won't need to have a transition period. It is like, I hope I see them again. Yeah, that's a good point. And another thing that Michael has done before he leaves is he officially names his successor. And it is Dwight. And Michael does this via letter. He asks Dwight to come into the office and say, hey, can you give this letter of congratulations to Dwight K. Schrute? And the letter says, congratulations, A-Wipe. Don't screw the pooch. Which is uh, about as succinct, I guess, as Michael could make it. But Dwight is so overcome with happiness that he bursts into tears, just overjoyed at the prospect of it. And Michael's extremely uncomfortable by these tears. Side note, this obviously is not Michael's call to make. Like, David Wallace, yeah, said, hey, you know, bring us a suggestion as to who could take over the branch. But ultimately, that's going to be up to David Wallace. Yeah, the board of directors is likely going to be the one that is making the ultimate choice. And this is the thing that Michael never has gotten from the very start of this possibility. They just want to know from someone that works with the Scranton branch every day, who would you think would do a good job? And there are a couple schools of thought here. You, We know that Michael was a very good salesman. And that's probably kind of what led to him becoming the regional manager. So by that logic, you could say that Dwight is probably the number one candidate for the job. However, you also have Jim, who is the recognized number two in the office, was given that position by corporate, Mm -hmm. is interviewing for this job. So they clearly see him as a capable employee. And so if he weren't to get the job at corporate, it feels like he is the obvious choice to be the regional manager of the Scranton branch if Michael were to be the one to get the job at corporate. Slight divergence here. And you were saying, you know, Michael was a really good salesperson that probably led to him becoming manager. I see this often in the the skills of just being a good employee and being good at the task that is your job does not translate as not a one-to-one that you are going to be a good manager. For sure. And the problem is a lot of companies and organizations don't provide any sort of management training and they expect the person that is a really great salesperson, for instance, to be able to step in and just become a manager. That's why it's its own you know, major and aspect of business school in and of itself. It is an actual skill that needs to be honed. And I've seen it often that you get certain people, especially conflict avoidant types in a management role, and it is not good because they'll get steamrolled by the squeaky wheel every single time, especially if there's no sort of training. I mean, let alone just a one day, hey, this is how to be a manager type thing more so than, okay, yeah, you just sign people's time cards. Like there's more to it than that. And um, 
in my career, I've not had a lot of good managers because of that aspect. So as we have seen before, Dwight lets this power get to his head very, very quickly. And in one of my favorite interactions of the show, he does some gloating to Jim. I am going to be your new boss. (laughs) It's my greatest dream come true. Welcome to the hotel hell. Check-in time is now. Check-out time is never. Does my room have a cable? No. And the sheets are made of fire. Can I change rooms? Sorry, we're all booked up. Hell convention in town. Can I have a late check-out? I'll have to talk to the manager. You're not the manager, even in your own fantasy? I'm the owner. The co-owner. With Satan. Okay. Just so I understand that in your wildest fantasy, you are in hell. And you are co-running a bed and breakfast with the devil. Yeah, but I haven't told you my salary yet. Go. $80,000 a year. Dwight also moves quickly on kind of setting up the hierarchy in the office. He posts a sign-up sheet for interviews for the assistant regional manager position. Dwight tells the camera that his ideal choice would be Jack Bauer from the show 24 that aired on Fox like back in the early 2000s, but says that uh, Jack Bauer is unavailable, fictional, and overqualified, which I've never seen that show, but yeah, probably a FBI slash CIA agent is a little overqualified for the assistant regional manager at a, at a paper company. Andy's the only person to sign up, which really uh, disappoints Dwight. But as we saw in the previous episode, people aren't thrilled at the prospect of Dwight being the manager either. So after a rigorous interview process where Andy is asked how to make a table and engages in an arm wrestling contest with Dwight, he is given the position by default pretty much, because like you said, he's the only one that interviewed. Dwight also calls Pam into his office and says that he respects the work that she does in the office and thinks that she would make a good assistant to the regional manager. But a secret one. Right. Dwight does a very convoluted (laughs) explanation as to what role Pam will play in the office. He offers her the position of assistant to the regional manager, then says that, you know what, I'm going to absorb, publicly absorb the duties of that position. (laughs) However, you will just kind of be the figurehead person of that. It's very odd, but yes, in the end, he asks Pam to be the secret assistant to the regional manager. And Pam follows the advice of Jim, who at one point told Pam that if Dwight ever asks you to be the secret to anything, you accept it. Because Michael has just gone to his interview with the assumption that he is going to get the job, he plays a song, just starts a tape recorder from his exit, and Dwight takes that opportunity to just jump in with everything he wants to do. He shuts off the music and says, all right, who's ready to work? 
Angela's like the only person that's just over the moon about this development. Dwight's new regime includes a reward system known as Shroot Bucks. And for any time an employee does something good, they'll get one Shroot Buck. They have to collect a thousand of those in order just to get five extra minutes at lunch. So it could potentially take someone a year, maybe more, just to get five extra minutes at at lunch. And Dwight states that he's going to fix some of the laziness and time wasting that became prevalent under Michael's watch. And Dwight directly cites just the ridiculous conference room meetings and parties just recognizing whatever that would often happen in the office. He says that those will instead be replaced by essentially seminars that relate to paper. And he opens it with an origins of paper seminar where they talk about dirt. Yeah, he displays seven different types of Pennsylvania topsoil. He asks, you know, can anyone tell us the type of nutrient that this topsoil needs in order for it to form into a tree that is then going to be cut down and made into paper? It's really, it sounds really dull. Stanley really shocks Dwight when refusing the shroot buck for just answering a question correctly. (laughs) Says pretty memorably that he'll give a large amount of Stanley Nichols if Dwight just never talks to him again. Pam sort of gets everyone back in line after this sort of outburst from Stanley, and it's really the only task we see her perform in her job as secret assistant to the regional manager. The biggest change that Dwight makes is really a cosmetic one. He paints the manager's office black in order to intimidate his subordinates and says he's going to put up a sign that says, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. And I just laugh at that, and it's very memorable to me because my friend and I would text each other that whenever we would enter a certain building on campus in college. <laughs> like That was pretty drab. Unfortunately, our campus was built uh, in the post-World War II height of the Cold War era, so our buildings were sad looking and very sad on the inside as well. So it's just a nice little callback to college for me there. At this point, the episode's gaze shifts towards New York City. And we see Michael in for his actual interview this time. He is there on the right date. And it's kind of a weird setup in that, and this is, you know, probably just plot convenience, you know, TV show stuff in that Michael, Karen, and Jim are all sitting in the waiting room of the corporate office, waiting their turn to be interviewed. That's not really how it would work in real life. You would just show up what at your interview time. Right, because potentially, let's say Jim's the third, which it seems like he is, and an interview's about an hour. He would have sat there for like three hours, potentially. Yeah. So Michael's up first, and the interview goes about as well as you would expect. Yeah. Michael doesn't seem to really focus on any of the good points that he brought up 
the day before when he showed up on accident to corporate. He has a lot of weird answers. Yeah, he spouts off these just kind of like cliche type things. Yeah, I don't know if you've heard this as an interview strategy. When they ask you, what are your biggest weaknesses? You're supposed to spin them into, but I'm working on it or, you know, but this is how I combat it or something like that. Instead of just being honest and being like, yeah, I have an organizational problem. Like, that's not my strong suit. So Michael really takes that to heart and he's like, (laughs) and just doesn't even answer the original question, which was, what are your biggest strengths, by the way? Michael answers it by saying, I'll tell you about my weaknesses, which he answers actually as strengths. It's just this bizarro kind of tip he probably picked up from Wikipedia type thing. And then when David follows up that question with, okay, what are your biggest weaknesses? Michael says, well, actually, my biggest weaknesses are my strengths my strengths are my weaknesses something along those lines something ridiculous right and you can kind of see very similar to what we saw in the cold open david just kind of nodding along was like yep this is this is going pretty much how i thought it would go yeah we just decided to give an interview to all the branch managers like this wasn't a serious candidate as the interview ends michael lets david know that hey i'm dating jan again And Michael was a real weirdo about that with Jan's assistant, Hunter, before going into the interview. So Michael further tells David that they're going to keep her professional. They won't have an issue, you know, working with each other when Michael gets the job. And David sort of hesitates here, but he's like, oh, I thought it was clear from the job description. The job that you're interviewing for is Jan's position. And Michael's not getting it. He's like, oh, well, what's Jane going to be doing? Are we going to tag team this? It's going to be a co-manager spot. And David says, no, we're letting her go. And this is another just kind of show convenience thing. At no point would you ever interview a candidate for a position that you were planning on firing somebody. Wasn't yet open. Yeah. And you certainly wouldn't do that with that person in the building in which you are doing the interviews. Yeah, we all know that Michael can't keep a secret. The only secret he was able to keep for even just a couple hours was the fact that he's going to be interviewed for this job by corporate at all. So he goes to Jan's office after his interview with David and says, oh, I think it went okay. And Jan says, well, don't worry. I'll just put in a good word. And then Michael does that weird word vomit thing where he's like, better do it now rather than later. And eventually ends up telling that she's going to get fired. Jan burst into the middle of David's interview with Karen to really just have this crazy outburst and say, where do you think you get off? I don't understand why this is happening. And David just lays it out to her and says, you have been erratic you chain smoke in your office all day. You just online shop. You barely do any work. You don't visit any of the other branches. You're always in Scranton. This has really been a long time coming and we're making this move. Again, probably in the real world, something that would have happened in a sit down with CEO and maybe the board of directors. Jan really loses it and 
flips her flips her jacket down and says, is it because of these? If so, I'll see you in court. And Michael is just really shirking out in the hallway, like trying to support Jan, but also make sure that David knows it wasn't him that said it, even though that's not remotely true. Because Michael still has a skin in the game at this point. Exactly. He is still being considered for the position. He has already interviewed for it. And like we have said, he thinks he has it. You know, something that's interesting to me is that David specifically asked Karen off the record what she thinks of Michael Scott. Like, he sort of needs an outside opinion to make sure that his barometer is correct on Michael. And she responds, you know, off the record, I think he'd be a disaster. Jane gets kicked out of the building by security. Michael says he's just going to drive her home. And David catches up with him before he goes and just says hey you know I think we're gonna go in a different direction Michael's not getting it he's like yeah I've got all kinds of directions he's thinking that this is a talking about the job sort of thing and David's like no we're not hiring you for and then Michael does that weird thing like he did when like he did when Tony quit earlier this season and Michael's like no you're fired and that's what's gonna be on the record Michael's like, you know what? You're you're right. I'm gonna, you know, I, I really like where I'm at. I I think it's it's better that I stay there. I couldn't betray my girlfriend by taking her job. I'm gonna go ahead and withdraw my name from consideration. And he asks David if he accepts that. And David, again, like we've seen this entire episode, just rolls with the punches <laughs> with Michael and is like, you know what? Sure, I Yep, I appreciate that. It's good, good interviewing you. We'll see you next time. So now we move on to Jim's interview. And this interview is very lighthearted. We have already seen David and Jim kind of have a very casual interaction at the cocktail party at David Wallace's house. They are both interested in sports. They are both very just kind of laid back guys. And so the atmosphere in the interview room is very casual. David starts off with joking with Jim saying, I don't know if I can hire a Sixers fan to be here. And they just kind of joke back and forth for a little bit. And Jim says, hey, here's the my first quarter numbers that, that you wanted. And he opens up a folder and out falls this note from Pam. And it says, remember us when you're famous. And attached to it is a gold yogurt label, which harkens back to the Office Olympics episode. The note throws Jim off a little bit. It sort of takes him out of the the interview and the flow of the interview. David says, you know, we want the person that gets this job to be here for the long haul. So long haul, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And Jim's thinking about it. And, you know, David wants to know, what did you most appreciate about your time at Scranton? You've been there for a while, kind of ignoring his foray at Stanford a little bit. And Jim looks down at the note from Pam and he just says, the friendships. And this is where, so this has been edited so that we kind of cut between a talking head with Pam 
Jim's interview with David. And then now we get this flash to the beach and the conversation that Jim and Pam had when she was standing in the water. So earlier this episode, we had just seen that Jim came over to talk to her, gave her a hug, they talked it out. We don't get any information about what they actually spoke about. Now with this flashback, we see specifically that Jim told Pam that the reason he moved to Stanford is that he just couldn't be in Scranton anymore. And Pam says, I know. And it's a and it's a loaded I know. It's a knowing thing. Like she completely understands the situation. He moved, I think we figured out it was like two weeks after the casino night sort of thing. Jim continues on saying, and even though I came back, I haven't really actually been back. And Pam just says, well, I wish you would, I wish you would come back. We don't see any more questions from David. We don't see any more of the interview. What we do see is Jim leaving the building, driving back alone, which side note, Karen had left right before Jim's interview, said she was going to meet some friends for lunch. He should just call her when he is done. Next we see Pam's talking with the camera, giving sort of this, sort of an introspective on the timing with Jim. She says they just never got it right. Someday, hopefully, she'll find her own Karen. She'll find somebody and that hopefully her and Jim will always be friends. They just could never get it down. But it's okay. And then Jim burst into the room, and I love this scene so much. He bursts in, he says, Pam, and he sees that she's in an interview, and he's like, oh, sorry. Hey, are you free for dinner tonight? And she's really thrown off, and she says, yes. And he's like, oh, well, it's a date. And I'm, like, crying because it's so beautiful, and that, like, never happens in real life or anything. But it is literally the culmination as a viewer of let's just say two and a half years, two and a half seasons of this. And you don't know throughout this episode, you don't know how this is going to go. Now, Curtis has differing views here and I am of the mind of Curtis. Like my head says, okay, whatever Curtis is going to say is correct. But my heart is like, this is such a beautiful moment for Jim and Pam And it's just perfect that it's happening in this interview room. And then Pam looks back to the camera and you can tell she's just so happy and overcome with emotion. And these two people are finally going to give it a go. Okay, take it away, Curtis. Yeah, this will be my introduction to me being on Team Karen. I think I've said it before, but... You've said it. This is really... In this episode, you see a lot of the things that makes Karen the better person for Jim and honestly just kind of the better person in general for Pam. We open the episode with Jim with a new haircut and Jim says that it was Karen's idea because he should probably look a little more professional for a job that he was interviewing for which you know good advice. Yeah. (laughs) It is kind of but it's kind of this it is kind of this watershed moment of because from this point on Jim becomes a little more involved with Dunder Mifflin correct very much so and so Jim could get by with that haircut that he had 
if he was just going to be a paper salesman where he's meeting with people face to face here and there, but for the most part, just making some phone calls. Yeah. He now has to be kind of be more of a corporate face and he has to have a little bit better of an image to be able to do that. Pam never would have made this suggestion. Pam would have just been like, oh yeah, well, things are how they are. So that's how they're going to be. When Karen and Jim go to New York the night before the interview, it is revealed that Jim doesn't really get out much. Yeah, keep going. He says that the last time that he was at New York was for his fifth grade field trip. Now, earlier in the series, it is pointed out like how close all of this stuff is to New York. Let me interject here because we know that Scranton to New York is like a at least a three-hour drive. You and I are about a three to four-hour drive from a major city. We're three to four-hour drive from, from Chicago. But you know what's a pain in the ass? Going to Chicago. I mean, sure, but there is certainly more to do and see in Chicago then there is where we live. For sure. I don't, I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm saying, and it's shocking that Jim was in Stamford, which is like a 45 minute train ride yep. to New York City for at least, I don't know, four to six months and didn't do more in New York then. That's the biggest crime here. And you and I go to Chicago with some regularity, I would say. It's not like it's been ages. But when I say it's a pain in the ass, I mean, where are you going to park? It's going to be at a minimum $50 if you're driving to park. So I'm just talking about like logistical things like that. And then what are you going to do? Everything that you're going to do is going to cost you like one day is going to cost you at least $200 in food and event. Then if you're going to spend the night, good luck. It's going to cost you at least $400. So there, I'll get off my soapbox of complaining about big city prices. But But the point here is, is that Jim clearly doesn't get out much. And he goes through all this, these things that he and Karen did. Which Karen does get out a lot. Yeah. They went to this notable restaurant in the the village for lunch. They second acted a Broadway show. They went to this bar that used to be a church. And when Jim is saying these things, he is saying them with some excitement as if he's enjoying the things that they are doing together. Sure, he's out of the rut. Yeah, again, these are not things that Pam are gonna is going to do. Pam is going to wait and she is going to let Jim take the lead. Jim is not the type of person to take the lead on things. Agree. I wholeheartedly agree with you. Jim and Pam are not going to push each other. Right. So they are going to sit and have their boring lives in Scranton together and not do anything fun. They're just going to be like, oh, well, that's that's just what we do. It's That's our life. Sure. And then this is another thing that we have kind of talked about earlier on this podcast is that Karen, in being considered for this job and wanting to interview for the job 
has some drive, has some career goals. Whereas Pam very clearly does not like her job and she is very bored with it, but she's not going to do anything about it and she hasn't done anything about it. Yeah, no, that is completely fair. I think it's also telling that Jim and Karen never had a conversation about the fact that they were both interviewing for one job. They've mostly just had sort of sarcastic joking back and forth about it until that evening in New York City when Karen says, okay, so what's going to happen? Like, when one of us gets to this, what's going to happen? And she lays it out, same as she did in Stanford, telling Jim that if he got the job in New York, that she would move for him, which is so huge, and they are not remotely on the same page. Yes and no. I mean, he kind of hems and haws about it when she initially brings it up, but when she's just like, if you got the job, I'd move here for you. And he's just like, you know what? I I would like that. I I think that would be a good thing. He reacts positively to it. I guess you could infer that. I mean, Karen has to point out that there's not a future for them in Scranton. Now, it's sort of easy for her to say, we don't know where she's from, but she's not from Scranton. Jim is from Scranton. We learn later in later seasons, like, his parents live there. Yeah. And this, her bringing this up, in and of itself, is another reason that she is more of an adult than Pam and is better for Jim than Pam is. And it is something that we have discussed ad nauseum on this podcast before Karen was here, is that you see Jim and Karen just kind of orbiting around each other and talking around the issues that actually need to, bring, need to be brought up until at some point there's a breaking point and one of them is just makes an ultimatum essentially. I mean, can you really make the statement that someone is the better person for Jim if Jim doesn't have true and genuine feelings for that person? That's not Karen's fault though. No. That's Jim's fault. And so Karen, again, is the adult in the room in this entire situation where she is forcing Jim to confront these feelings and talk about hard things whereas before he was willing just to swallow everything swallow all his feelings for Pam and just kind of let things go until again like I said it's an ultimatum where hey here's this thing I've been thinking for the last five years or however long that they had been working together and when he gets rebuffed it's like okay well peace I'm out of here yeah and I I can't tell if we are supposed to infer from the flashback to the beach where he says I know I came back to Scranton but I didn't really fully come back if it's supposed to be an inference to the fact that he's dating Karen and that hasn't really allowed him to fully come back like what that's supposed to be about I you know I I kind of thought the same thing and you saying that just kind of makes me think of like his idea of Scranton for, you know, the recent history has involved Pam and right. being very involved with Pam. And so since he can't do that, 
it's like a piece of Scranton is missing. Like yeah. he isn't fully there because he's not, he doesn't have the same relationship with Pam that he did before he left. And again, if I'm Karen, I'm having this exact same conversation. The listen, that is too crowded in Scranton. This is not working. We need to figure out what the future is for us in our relationship. Curtis, let me bring up another scene with you and let me know how you read it. So right after Jan's meltdown, Karen is back out in the waiting room sitting next to Jim. That's when she, when Jan is being escorted out by security and she's saying goodbye to Hunter. And Karen is just like, oh, wow. Oh, my God. That was crazy. And Jim's response is, yeah, I kind of feel bad for her. And Karen immediately says, don't. She is nuts. And this is right before Karen leaves to go have lunch with her friends. And Jim is sort of like quiet and contemplative here. And I'll talk about a little bit about this in the annex, but I can't tell if we're supposed to infer as viewers a meaning from this interaction as if like, okay, Karen's sort of hard and unfeeling and uncaring for Jan in this moment. And Jim's really coming from a place of having some sympathy for her. And that's a little bit of a schism. I I hadn't thought about it, but now that you say it, I think maybe we are meant to infer that Jan and Pam are the same person in these situations. That was Jan's heart-on-her-sleeve moment. Maybe. Like, she had had enough, and she was letting everything go, which we just saw Pam do the previous episode. And I think Jim's always had a little bit of an understanding of Jan. Now, this is where I will say, and we've said this before, this is where I will say the show The Office really does Jan wrong. And this is the start of it here. Now, the the woman we saw and met in season two is not the same woman. Now, I know there's character For development, sure. but this is a real spiral. It's a hard turn. Yes. Like, there was... And it, and it just happens. Like, yeah, there's, there's no... no Build-up. Yeah, there's no anything. Like, we do get, like, the, oh, yeah, I got divorced thing. But yeah. that's literally it. And even that is kind of a throwaway line. And they have her be the character that, you know, this successful, strong professional woman they have her be that character post her saying yeah I got divorced right and so I think we have seen just instances of Jan and Jim talking and connecting um maybe more so than we've seen with Karen Karen is such a flat one-dimensional character unfortunately on this season and I think that's another I don't know where you would put it into season three but I think that's unfortunate and so to go back to, you know, this scene that you're talking about, mm-hmm. I think it is, and to just kind of bring in what, you know, we have just talked about, Jim, this is, this is, this is Jan's heart on her sleeve moment, the same one that Pam had last episode, the same one that Jim had in Casino Night. Sure. So 
he is seeing this as, oh yeah, that's how, that's how you operate. Yeah, that's what I, I do. Really... That's what I do. That's what the woman I love does. That's that's you know yeah, I can relate. This is what I do. Whereas Karen is the no 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 no. We're gonna talk about this type, and. Maybe Karen has, you could say that she has a little bit of a higher emotional IQ. For sure. Than, than Jim and Pam and Jan are operating with. What really upsets me is how it ends off with Karen. Yeah, this is, this is poor. This is yeah. very, very poor. And I'll talk about that a little bit later in the episode. Okay, we'll let you, we'll give you that. So this is this pretty much ends the episode. We do get one last thing and it is David Wallace on the phone offering the corporate position to a mystery person on the other line. And David says it'll be nice to have another MBA in the office. And the camera cuts to Ryan on the phone and Ryan says looking forward to it ryan is the person who gets the corporate position it's kind of shocking especially because we didn't even know that he was interviewing however had jim and karen not been explicit about it to michael we may have never known that like there never needed to be a a public outing of everyone going to interview with corporate now, it does seem surprising given Ryan's poor sales record, but he does have an MBA, and that does seem to have what really won, you know, David over. And immediately, Ryan breaks up with Kelly once he gets off the phone, and, and that's how season three ends. Yeah. So let's go to the annex with Antoinette to find out any fun facts about this episode. So obviously, based on the length of this podcast episode, this office episode was supersized. It was an hour long, and the original script fit an hour and a half of filming. So they really had to trim it down to get it to like the 42 minutes, you know, for an, for an hour time slot. In an early scene when Jim is talking with Kevin, and Kevin's asking who Jim finds hotter, and Jim sort of puts his hand on his chin and just says mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he's doing an impression of the director of this episode um and that really is sort of an inside thing that only the like cast and crew is gonna pick up on the goodbye kelly kapoor line that angela says when dwight tells her that he she will be spending the night with the new regional manager of gender mifflin scranton was ad-libbed uh, and improved, if you will, by Angela. So apparently the cast did not know how this was going to end until it actually aired, as far as the Jim, Pam, Karen triangle, because they shot several different possible endings. So there could have been one in which Jim ended up with Karen. Now... I don't think that was ever real in the sense of the show, but probably just a way to throw people off. Yeah, there was only one way this was ever going to end. Right. Because it's a sitcom trope of will they, won't they. Like, right. It was always going to end up being Jim and Pam. 
And so because of that, the director really made a lot of Jim's reactions as neutral as possible and would sort of focus in on them so that the audience really wasn't sure where Jim was going to come out on. Was he going to go with Pam? Was he going to go with Karen? Now, I didn't really read it like that. I never felt that the reactions were all that neutral. And you could argue that his uh, interactions with Karen when she's asking, you know, what is what is our future? That may be more of what he's talking about, but it just made it seem that he was not interested in Karen. Maybe. Um, Jenna Fisher was actually nominated for an Emmy for this episode. And this episode did win a couple of... Uh, like an Emmy for editing and then an, a, I think a Writers Guild, Guild Award for writing. Okay, Curtis, do you have a Dundee to give out? I do. The Failing Up Award goes to Ryan for kind of, as you pointed out, he isn't that good of a salesman. He doesn't seem to bring anything too constructive to the office. Only snark. Right. And so it is kind of a shock that he gets the corporate job. Now, you say that in the moment, knowing what we know and seeing this, seeing what happens after this. Could be one of the roll the dice things by David. Yes. Now, it is, and it's something I liken to what happened earlier in the episode where David asks Michael, what do you think you can bring to this job? Like, what can, what changes do you think you can make? What, what can be changed here? And Michael says some really dumb answers about changing, changing the name of Dunder Mifflin. <laughs> Whereas Ryan brings some very innovative, seemingly innovative things to the table that we will see play out in the next season sure and also some people are just really good interviewers so some people get the job based on that and then kind of suck as an employee right and kind of as you said before we don't know karen's background but jim and michael are just salesmen they're not they're not you know business types we have to assume that jim just knowing who Jim is, took this job because it was a job, mm-hmm. and Michael's just kind of a lifer there. So they don't have the you know big business school backing that Ryan does, where he probably would have learned some you know more corporate like tactics mm-hmm. than the other two. Sure. What is your Dundee? Mine Dundee is the Just Call Him an Influencer Award, and that goes to Creed for his blog, quote unquote. Uh, The only reason we know that Creed has a blog is that he says that he blogged all about Pam's outburst at the beach, and Ryan then says that Creed came to him about a year ago uh, wanting to write a blog, and Ryan wanted to protect the world from Creed's brain. So he just opened up a Word doc through a, a nonsensical URL at the top and just let Creed add it. 
Ryan says he's read some of it, and even for the internet, it's a little shocking. I think that's an act you can actually go to. Oh, really? www.creedthoughts.gov backslash www.creedthoughts.com or something like that, whatever it is. Yeah. I think it's an actual web address. Oh, that's hilarious. There, we get like a close up of the screen, and it's sort of just nonsensical musing like what do you think is the best car i think it's a motorcycle and i think the argument could be made that there are often a lot of blogs out there uh that are just nonsensical musings for sure have you read a food blog before yeah a good joke that i have heard is (laughs) the cure for cancer could be in the non-recipe part of a food blog and we would never know it because nobody reads that stuff no, and they're loaded with like ads and videos, and it takes five minutes just to scroll down to the damn recipe. Who is your employee of the month? I chose David uh, because he made the correct move in letting go of Jan, although quite a bit late, and didn't get uh, seduced, if you will, by Michael's improv and craziness in his in his interview. And he just really always plays it cool. I do really enjoy David in this episode, just for that exact reason of him just being like, "Uh huh, yeah, Michael, you're terrible at this. I know, but it's fun." I am pretty sure that we have said this on this podcast before, but Andy Buckley, who plays David, not a trained doctor, working at Wells Fargo when all this was being shot. So he does pretty well. Who is your employee of the month? Um, I have two nominees here. One is Dwight, just because he finally got like that, that small time of the power that he really wants and he was making some useful changes (laughs) like he points out that they waste a whole lot of time in the office and they probably could be getting work done sure he followed that up with a seminar about dirt (laughs) but his head was in the right place right my other one is not jim because (laughs) Of everything he does in this episode, most specifically for seemingly stranding Karen in New York. Yeah, that is a real... Okay, think about this as an adult. You are at lunch with your friends. You're waiting for your girlfriend, not me, because I wouldn't do this to you, to call you to come get you so you can go back home to where you're in an apartment and your stuff is. Yep. Three hours. Yeah. So now Karen is probably out, I don't know, 30 to $50 for a train ride home probably or has to bum a ride off of one of her friends Yeah. just to get back to Scranton because her asshole boyfriend decided, nah, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm going to go drive to ask out another woman. In pure gym form of not having a conversation about it and just leaving it. Yeah, no one is hearing that story from Karen's point of view and not being like, 
wow, that guy's a huge dick. He literally just left you and drove three hours to go ask out a woman he's been pining for. That really sucks. Like everyone is giving Karen some ice cream and a pat on the back and saying, girl, you're better than him. Yep. Yes. So not Jim is my (laughs) other employee of the month. So that's where we talk about (laughs) poor Karen getting stranded. And so that wraps up this season. Now, we did have some firings in this episode. Meredith gets fired for <laughs> sexually harassing Jim. When, About his haircut. Yeah, when he, when he comes in to the office with a new haircut, Meredith says it's sexy hot and then tells him to turn around. And several times. Yeah. Uh, that's her first firing of this season. It's the third of uh, overall. Kevin gets fired for having a conversation with Jim about who's hotter between Karen and Pam. Now, that's innocent enough, but then he says that Pam has bigger boobs. Yeah, he takes it to um, sort of a hostile work environment type of place. It's... His fourth firing this season, it's his fourth overall. Michael also gets fired for sexually inappropriate remarks when Jim and Karen approach him to leave early for the day so they can go to New York. Michael asks, why? So you can do it? Like his immediate reaction. Yeah. It is Michael's 13th firing (laughs) of the season. It's his 25th overall. And we lose Jan for actually getting fired in this episode. And it does sound like David had legitimate reasons for this firing. Yep. It's her first firing overall. It's her first of the season. We had 16 different people get fired this season. Very active season. Michael led them all with 13. (laughs) He is just shy of 500 for the entire series. He has been fired in almost half of the episodes (laughs) of the entire series. We are at episode 51 right now. And he was over 500 for the season. Creed was the second most fired this season with five. Oh, wow. That's kind of surprising. And Kevin was third with four. (laughs) All of them... We're in this season. All of his firings have been in this season. So that's yeah. something to be proud of, I guess. <laughs> you had several people with two in there as well. As for our final count of people who have been fired, there is one person left alive at this point. And that is Daryl. Since we lost Jan this episode, that leaves only Daryl, <laughs> who we... As we've talked about this off pod before, we were probably a little generous to Daryl for not firing him in the carpet when he and Roy were sleeping and drinking beer in Michael's office. Yeah. Man, we were pretty close to having to shut it all down. And in, in thinking of this podcast, I always had the thought that The only way that this would work and that the office actually has to shut down because everybody got fired 
is that everybody has to get fired before we get the new wave of people that show up mm -hmm. in season five. Yeah. So. Five if, to six. If Daryl goes next season, that'll be it. Yeah. That'll be it. And it's sort of telling that we don't have any upstairs workers left. Like, we just have the warehouse. Yeah. The people that we see every once in a while. Mm -hmm. So we have come a long way in this season. And it is very fitting that the Pam and Jim relationship kind of gets tied up at the end here. Because it bookends the season. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe NBC learned its lesson from Friends. Like, you can't necessarily keep this playing out the entire run of the show. Yeah. There needs to be... People want to see... If you're going to do fan service, you need to kind of give it some, some time to breathe, mm -hmm. if you will, and develop. Like, people wanted Ross and Rachel to end up together forever. And they waited until the very end of that show's run to right. do that. You didn't ever see it. Yeah. With this, you're going to get what, six seasons mm -hmm. of them, of Pam and Jim together. Right. We also saw very many iconic episodes and moments in this season. You have said several times before that at about the middle of this season is when the show really, really hits its stride. Yeah, not that season four or five is downhill. There are some times in season four, and, and next episode we'll talk about the why, um, where it, it, it can drag a little bit. And then there are some real solid gems in um, season five as well, in my opinion. So how do you feel about where we have come to at this point? Like I've said, rationally, Karen has, I mean, just the better, claim is not the right word here, but is just the better uh, choice. Um, not rationally, I just love this ending. We used to um, sort of tease a friend of mine that she should pull this move on on a guy that she had a crush on that she was friends with and just be like hey are you free for dinner okay it's a date like I, I just love the sort of simplicity of it I've enjoyed I enjoy this season a lot now watching the show critically has made me rethink some of those uh things like just taking notes and not just watching for pure uh entertainment's sake um but I still find it to be sort of just a fun light you know, refuge away from things. Uh, what's your take on the season? I, th I think I, for the most part, laid my thoughts out right. earlier in the episode. One thing I do want to add, though, is that in this season, we see Michael develop as the character that he will be for the remainder of the series. Sure. And in watching it, I wonder why they never had him be this guy the entire time why they had to go through two seasons of him being just over the top awkward and sometimes amazingly inappropriate right i think they just had to find the right i mean i guess balance. but like why i don't know why why you would think it'd be a good idea for the boss to be 
this just racist, misogynist guy, why you think that would play well. Granted, we are, you know, analyzing this 15-ish years later. So, you know, things have changed a bit. I do enjoy the fact that we got to know more of the minor characters a little bit better and we'll continue to do so over the next season. Um, But I think that's made the show just more rich and we've added characters. We've added Andy. Uh, We don't know where we stand with Karen. Yeah. So I agree with you there. So yeah, I, it, it makes the show an easier watch when Michael is just this kind of clueless idiot rather than a racist misogynist. Yes. And not to the level at Phyllis's wedding, like that's overkill. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they do. They, it's over the top sometimes, yeah. but for the most part, he isn't quite in that. Um, he, he's borderline there. He's not in the Andy Dwyer too dumb to function right. uh, realm, but he, because we see, we at least see Michael be a capable manager slash salesman here and there enough to be like okay this is why he has the job flashes of it yeah so that pretty much does it for this episode and for this season thanks for listening please be sure to follow us on twitter at downsizing pod to get all the latest updates and be sure to keep listening on spotify google podcasts apple podcasts wherever you're listening to us Please be sure to rate, subscribe, and comment to keep getting our name out there. We appreciate you listening. We will see you next week. We will see you next season. Yeah. Bye. Bye.